it's a giant puzzle we're trying to solve and put together here, right? And it will take public transportation. It's going to take electrification. It's going to take new technology. It's also going to take car sharing. It's going to take micro mobility. It's going to take building infrastructure for biking and walking um, and really see how we can fit those together. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Angela Hultberg is my first return guest to the Freewheeling Podcast. Since we last spoke, she's joined the UN Climate Champions, preparing for the COP26 Climate Conference in Glasgow. She's focused on road transportation. Angela, you're my first return guest. Welcome back to the Freewheeling Podcast. I'm honoured. I'm honoured. Thank you. (laughs) Well, it's because you've managed to do two such different roles in such a short period of time. So you're you're currently a climate champion for COP26. Is that right? That is right. I'm the road transport lead at the Climate Champions team. So first of all, what is the Climate Champions team? So um, the Climate Champions team is a group of people uh, working together to engage with the non-state actors leading up to COP26. So uh, we're a quite large group of people uh, headed by our high-level champions, uh, Nigel Topping and Gonzalo. And we're working in in different sectors to make sure that we rally non-state actors ahead of COP26. And so you're kind of part of the the the, the bureaucracy, as it were, of the conference. Is that right? You're part of you you work for the UK government, who are the hosts of the conference, and you're part of that huge team of people making it happen. Is that right? Yes and no. So technically, the high level champion for this year, Nigel Topping, is appointed by the UK. But then we don't actually work for the UK. We work for the UN uh, in trying to to rally up the non-state actors. Last year, uh, Chile was the hosting nation and they appointed uh, Gonzalo, who is still a high level champion. So they are elected for two years uh, to ensure some uh, continuation. Um, so Nigel will stick around for next year when COP27 will be in Africa as well. Okay, so you are so the I because I knew that Nigel Topic had been appointed by the UK, but you're actually I see you work for the UN, yes. um, but you're gearing up to a conference that is being led by the UK. So how much. how much of your how much of your work's led by the UK government as opposed to? the kind of the UN machine? So you can say that um, the UK um, are focusing a lot on the state actors and the high-level champions on the non-state actors, but then they are a lot of grey zones. Of course, uh, UK will engage with with businesses and, and other stakeholders as well, would make no sense not to. And of course, for us engaging a lot with businesses, we do have a, a big interest in, in policy and things like that as well. So there's a lot of grey areas here, but we work very closely together. And I think we are in a number of alignment meetings every week to to just keep everything on track. So, um, yeah, I think the roles and responsibilities can sometimes be um, a bit confusing, but we all want the same thing. So at the end of the day, it usually turns out quite well. So tell us a bit about how these conferences work then. I don't know. Have you read um, President Obama's autobiography? I have not. Um, 
there's an amazing scene in there at the climate conference. I, the, the, I think it may have been COP15, the big one that he went to. And he describes how he landed and needed to get a deal, couldn't find the Chinese delegation. They turned out to be locked in a room with the Brazilian and the Indian delegations, I think it was. And he kind of marched through the corridors, banged on the door, demanded to be let in, found the president of China in there, thrashed out a deal, Grab, wrote it down on a scrap of paper and went out and announced it. And it all, yeah, the drama of it's fantastic. But I, I imagine there's probably, it's probably not quite as simple as that, is it? I mean, t- tell us a bit about how it actually works I, in reality. Yeah, that does sound very dramatic and also a little bit exciting, I have to say. Um, that's, uh, <laughs> that's not how is I that how see it. All works, yeah, it's not how I see my experience at co playing out. I'm sure there there is a bit of that, of course, as well during the actual conference. But in all honesty, 90% of all the work has to be done before people actually arrive in Glasgow. It's uh, It would be hard for anyone, business leader, uh, prime minister, whomever, to show up at COP and, and make decisions, you know, life-saving split-second decisions like that. You obviously don't do it. I think this COP, especially um, being, you know, five years since the Paris Agreement, uh, following the the report that came out uh, from IPCC, this is really the COP where we need very strong commitments and very clear plans for how this will work out. And those are being negotiated and discussed now, of course, we can't we can't come to COP and discuss that. That said, I do hope that the actual experience of COP will also mean that some policymakers, some businesses maybe who are a bit on the fence uh, in certain topics will just sort of be pushed down on the right side of the fence. Uh, because I do think, and this is especially true for businesses, if you are not there to be a leader, you will most probably be left behind a little bit, and uh, and that's where we'll be by November. So so I am hoping that COP itself will create that final push, but most of the pushing, uh, in lack of a better word, is being done right now. Probably worth actually just clarifying what does what does COP stand for? Um, because it's not obvious, is it, in the context of climate change, what COP stands no, for? No, and there are so many abbreviations, right? I have googled so much myself in these past few months, uh, but it's the it's the climate change conference. Um, I don't. I realise now, like what. It's the UN Climate Change Conference. Where does the P come in? I should really know this, Thomas. <laughs> I'm embarrassed That's now, brilliant. but yeah. You work for it and you don't know what it stands for. No one ever does. It's sort of, it's just, there's, there's been this 20 years of, more than 20 years of COP conferences every year. Yes. And we never, they're never referred to, but it must no, stand it's for something. Actually, yeah, it's actually the Conference of Parties. That's the COP, uh, oh, the P, go. the Conference of Parties. But but yeah, the UN Climate Change Conference is usually what, what I stick to. So you're responsible for engagement of all non-state actors on road travel, road transport. Yes. That sounds like an enormous remit um, to try to get aligned. That's all road transport in over 200 countries. Um, You can't pick up the phone and talk to all of those people. So 
what what are, what are the priorities? Where were you devoting your time in the in the scarce few months before Glasgow? Yeah, I think this was the hardest part about joining the team actually to sit down uh, with the team and really say, look, we can't do it all. I wish we could. We can't. November is approaching quickly. Right now, it's less than a hundred days, you know, and we don't have all the resources in the world. Um, so we had to be quite firm on on priorities. Our number one priority is actually with the vehicle manufacturers at the moment. If we are to have any chance of reaching net zero by 2050 at the very latest, then road transport must decarbonize a lot quicker. So anything we sell in 2040 will still be around 2050, right? Uh, so if we want to phase out the entire combustion engine fleet, then we need to stop selling combustion engines well ahead of 2050. We need to do that in the 2030s. And so that is probably our main priority to engage with the vehicle manufacturers um, to, to have these discussions, like what are your plans? What can you commit to? How can we uh, make this happen? What do you need from policymakers to make this happen? That's uh, probably our main priority. However, it I think it's fair to say when we talk about new vehicle sales and the OEMs, that makes us very focused on the global north, right? And we don't want uh, sustainable mobility to be a transition for the privileged few. We want this to be a global transition. And there's a real risk if we transition in Europe uh, and we all go out and we buy electric vehicles because we've made them available and affordable for everyone, everyone here. Where does all the internal combustion engine go? Yeah, they go to Africa. And the same can be said for North America, South America. So we need to make sure that this transitioning um, is happening globally and that we don't end up with vehicle dumping and just moving the problem. So we are also focusing a lot on how this transition can be done in the global south as well and how we make it resilient and, and equal for all. So those are probably the two main streams of our work. And if I say to you, is this possible? Obviously, you'll have to say yes. But what are the big challenges? Because it is the most almighty task to phase out combustion engines globally in the timeline you've just outlined. What What are the main obstacles? What are the vehicle manufacturers telling you about achievability and what needs to be done to make it happen? I don't know if it is that hard, Thomas. I think many of the... Of course, I'm optimistic. And yes, I will say yes. Um, but I will mean it too, because, you you know, with or without the climate champions, many of the OEMs are already heading in this direction. Hopefully, we can uh, give a bit of push. Maybe we can facilitate some conversations that are needs to be had. Uh, and maybe we can even convince one or two. But I think as an industry, it's very clear this is where we need to go. We have companies, uh, also automotive manufacturers, joining the Race to Zero campaign, uh, which is uh, the campaign of the climate champions where you commit to being net zero uh, 2050 by the latest and you do that by setting science-based targets for instance so it's uh, it's not just promising something you actually have to show how um, 
And we see automotive manufacturers uh, joining that campaign. We see even for heavy duty. I mean, they've in Europe, most heavy duty manufacturers have already committed to being fossil free by 2040. And I think the step between fossil free and zero emission doesn't necessarily have to be that big. Um, so I think I think most of them are telling me that we can absolutely do a lot by 2035 and by 2040. Uh, some are saying we can go all the way. Volvo has already committed to 2030, right? Uh, I think we just got the news now that Alfa Romeo will go uh, completely electric and we're getting those uh, commitments also coming from from other companies as well. So there's a lot of, of positive momentum. And now the indications I'm getting from some of the world's largest OEMs are that, yes, this is the direction we're heading in. Uh, we actually think we can do it quicker than we previously thought. And I suppose the danger is that we've seen both governments and companies making lots of commitments in the run up to COP26. And the danger is that the commitments don't actually become reality subsequently. What are the things that need to be put in place to enable those commitments to come true? And especially what are the policy commitments that need to be put in place to enable them to come Yeah, to, come I was true. just about to say it, it needs to be the collaboration between business and policy is absolutely crucial. We need policy to be a friend of business uh, in doing this transition, but we need policy also to clearly tell business that this is happening um, and you need to do it. It's about both uh, pushing them to do it but also enabling them to do it, to really lay that foundation. We see many of the OEMs quite comfortable to make these commitments for Europe because they believe uh, the foundation is there, the framework is there, and they can clearly see and believe the direction with the uh, Fit for 55 package, the Green New Deal. They know this is where they need to be and where they need to invest. And that's why we see these huge investments coming from, from Nissan investing in, in UK, building a, a new gigafactory in Sutherland. We see Daimler announcing a 40 billion euro investment in the transition, including building eight uh, battery production facilities because the policy is here. Um, those very same manufacturers, though, have a bit harder time committing for North America because they are not quite sure where policy is heading. And now with the new infrastructure plan and, and with the new um, announcements coming from the Biden administration, maybe we can see the same type of development in North America that we saw in, uh, in Europe. Um, but it, it, it remains to be seen, really. And the same goes for, for the rest of the world. Really need the policy for businesses to dare to make those investments because there will be investments to make this happen. And that's one of the main barriers, of course. Uh, we need the charging infrastructure. We need the, the subsidies, maybe, um, to reach that volume um, to, to make this transition happen much faster because the current speed is not enough. We need to accelerate. And you mentioned the Global South earlier. And as you say, you know, in a stable policy environment such as the EU, it feels relatively easy. But what do you do about somewhere like Lagos, you know, an enormous global metropolis 
entirely dependent on internal combustion, relatively unstable political environment, and an economic dependent on fossil fuels and petroleum. How, how on earth do you create a policy environment that enables the decarbonisation of road transport in Lagos? Um, well, I wouldn't uh, place myself as a Lagos expert specifically, but I think we also need to be a bit humble to the fact that not everywhere is Europe and not everything works like it does in Europe. When we look at mobility in, in Africa, in South America, Southeast Asia, these are mobility systems that are quite different. We can't talk about sustainable mobility and decarbonisation of the transport industry in Africa without addressing two and three wheelers, without addressing informal transportation, which is a significant share of that total um, uh, mobility system. Things that virtually don't exist in large part of, of Europe. Obviously, we have some two-wheelers, but not, not as a foundation for our mobility systems. So I think we need to realise that it will require different solutions. Uh, but of course, we are going to need regulation about emission standards. Uh, we need regulation to face out fossil fuel. There's no other way around it. But we also need... Um, to take care of those people. We can't just put a really high price on fossil fuel and expect everyone to, to pay it and, and we're done because we still have to make sure that that switching is affordable for the many people. So there's a huge part of just transition thinking that needs to go into it. But I think we have to we also have to combine the two. It's not the global north and the global south. If we want to avoid uh, vehicle dumping in Africa, for instance, we need to not only change the import regulation in African countries and make sure they harmonize, uh, we also need to have regulation in the exporting countries to make sure that what you put on the market, you are actually responsible for. You can't just ship it off. Uh, so, it's going to take it's going to take harmonization and collaboration and and keeping the just transition uh, perspective at at all times so you coming back now to you know closer to home one of my worries is around simply focusing on changing the propulsion mechanism of cars but the assumption that we still have transport systems based around cars and i don't know if you heard a few a few weeks ago i spoke to horace dediu the um the chap who coined the term micromobility and he spoke passionately about the fact that if we just carry on relying on cars even if they're electric cars we will still massively miss our overall climate our carbon emission targets because cars are still massive emitters of climate of, of carbon and um even if they're not if there's none at a tailpipe because they have to be made, they have to be um, decommissioned. And the numbers are growing. The current trends are the numbers of cars are growing very rapidly. So we need to change the way we travel as opposed to just change the propulsion that drives how we travel. Is that part of the COP26 agenda as well? Uh, it's part of the COP agenda, I would say. Um, like I mentioned in the beginning, it's hard to fit everything in. Um, but yes, it is part, especially I think around buses and public transportation. That is something we're working a lot with, especially in South America, in Latin America and the Caribbeans, actually, uh, which seem to be a very good starting point uh, for that. 
Um, so yes, it's absolutely part of an engine. And I absolutely agree. If this was as easy as ripping out combustion engines and putting in uh, electric engines, I'd hope we'd be at least halfway there by now. Uh, and, you know, I'd be out of a job. That would be absolutely fine. I can find something else to do. And then I can come back a third time uh, to talk about that with you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but no, of course, we have to to look bigger. It's about... It's a giant puzzle we're trying to to solve and put together here, right? And it will take public transportation. It's going to take electrification. It's going to take new technology. It's also going to take car sharing. It's going to take micro mobility. It's going to take building infrastructure for biking and walking. Um, and really see how we can fit those together. There's no point in deploying solution that you know, takes people from a bike to an electric scooter. That's not what we want to do. We want to bring people out of cars and we want to utilize the cars. We actually have much more. The average car in Europe stands still 92% of the time. And that drives me absolutely crazy. It's such a waste of resources. We only use our cars for getting from point A to point B 5% of the time. And then it stands still, always stuck in congestion or looking for parking. It's absolutely ridiculous. And when we do travel in our car, we usually travel one or two person in it. It's just, it's ridiculous. So we need to reduce the number of cars. Absolutely. That's the only way we'll target congestion, which is also a huge problem. And we need to use the resources we have much, much more efficient um, so, so yeah, I absolutely agree. It's about creating a mobility system that is sustainable for all, but also affordable, available, um, and and safe for everyone. And do you think we'll see some outcomes from COP twenty six around that agenda, um, or is that just too ambitious for, for this conference? I think we will. I have some insights. I can't share them all. Um, I. Th- think and I hope that COP26 will be the end of some of the more negative aspects. I I hope that this will be when we really set a hard target for when we need to be done with the internal combustion engine. But I also see that COP26 can be the beginning of, of something else, the beginning of addressing mobility systems, uh, not only in Europe and North America, but in the South as well, and start the discussions around public transportation, about transitioning in, in uh, the global South, about two and three wheelers, uh, all of that. So we will see the conversation starting. We'll probably see one or two very tangible things being presented at COP that we can then build on and carry with us into COP27, which will be in Africa. So one of the things that I read a lot in the papers, but I don't know how true it is, and you can tell me if it's true or not, is that there's a really important role for the British government in COP26 as the host nation in setting an example. Uh, is that is that true? Does the role of what the British are doing in this particular year make a difference to it the global outcome? It does. It's about leading with example too, right? If you are about to ask uh, your peers in other governments to commit to certain things, you must commit yourself, right? So the UK absolutely has the the opportunity to set a really good example for others to follow. And for governments as well as businesses, this will COP will be a place where leaders emerge. 
and uh, and UK as the hosting nation absolutely are well positioned to take that leader role and to really show uh, that, look, this is what we are doing. This is what we are committing to. These are our plans and, and please join us. And we encourage everyone to uh, to join and follow our efforts and to team up and work with other nations who are also doing a lot of good things uh, in this space. So it's not only about the UK, but obviously hosting this, yes, they are in pole position and it will be important. Likewise, if the UK would throw up their hands and say, no, you know, not really going to do much with this, then that would be horrible, wouldn't it? Then we'd have no discussion. So I think UK are really um, aiming to take that leadership position and see, you know, how how far can we come with other nations? And so you know, when you look at the targets that the UK has set in terms of you know, overall carbon reduction, it's great. And when you look at the specific targets in terms of elimination of internal combustion engines and cars, et cetera, et cetera. It also looks great. But when you look at things like the transport decarbonization plan and the detail that sits there, you start to think, are the plans in place at a detail level to actually fulfill these targets? Does the British transport decarbonization plan, as opposed to the targets, set the right example? I think most of the plans will need to be developed in the UK and in many other countries too. I think the most important thing now is to just get everyone on board. So we know the why has been discussed. We don't need to talk about that anymore. This could maybe the when. When is it going to end? And then we need to get into the details of the how. I think the mere fact to have a detail planned actually uh, is a really good step. But I have a really hard time seeing that any detailed plan you have today will not change over the course of the coming years. Um, I also think we'll see some areas accelerate a lot faster. Uh, I think we'll see other trends impacting the plans we have. Take online sales, for instance. You know, with the explosion of online sales come an explosion of delivery vehicles in city centers that we didn't account for pre-COVID. But we know now that these sales will remain at a much higher level than pre-pandemic. So we need to account and we need to adjust. And I think that's the trademark of any good plan that we build in adjustments. So I'd say, is it perfect? No. Do we need more? Yes. Uh, The same would be true for almost uh, any plan. And I think it's the uh, the role then of, of the non-state actors to also push governments to say that, look, this is actually not enough. And be very clear, if we are to transition, this is what we need from you. This, these are the these are the investments you need to make in charging infrastructure. These are the, you know, uh, frameworks we need to see from you to uh, to push. So I think there's a bit of back and forth here. And I think that's a good thing. So one of my personal bugbears, which if you've ever looked at the freewheeling blog, you'll know about, is rope pricing. Uh, it feels to me that trying to achieve decarbonisation of road transport without putting a price on people making journeys is almost unachievable. And I find it bizarre that road pricing isn't something that is front and centre of the policy agenda at a global level. We, we put a price on almost everything. Uh, One of the only things that he's not charged for is road space. And yet, as we eliminate internal combustion engine, we eliminate 
fuel taxes, which actually means that driving becomes cheaper. But as we said before, cars mm. still consume carbon. And I just don't see any meaningful push towards road pricing being put on the agenda. And yet I still I can't see how we're going to get to the end of this journey successfully without it. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Am I barking up the wrong tree? Is it not fundamental? Or actually is more being done that I can't see? I usually say in my role, to be honest, I'm almost policy agnostic, you know, I just want policy that pushes this to happen. Yes, putting a price is very efficient, uh, especially when it comes to businesses. And if that is a, a road tax or price, if that's, you know, paying a toll to enter the city or zero emission zones, those would all work. Uh, as a business, and, and I think I mentioned this last time, actually, if you can't access your customers front doors, you have no deliveries, you go out to business very efficient if you put a price like you say and i can see that okay either i invest five million now to to transition or i'll end up paying the five million uh over the course of of three years and then i have to transition anyway uh yes of course that makes it better and i think in general i'd like to see a world where people actually pay the price of their operations um i think that would uh would benefit us all and i think that would lead to just much much more sustainable um choices in general i think i heard it from uh, i was actually shocked i was at this uh mobility conference in oslo norway and it was so refreshing because they had local politicians there and one of them just said the most honest thing i i think i've heard almost um on stage in front of, you know, the general public, everyone who's going to vote for them and said, look, it will be possible to drive in Oslo. We'll just make it quite hard and expensive. And I think that was super refreshing to say that, look, you will pay the price. If you enter Oslo in an internal combustion engine vehicle, you will pay for that. Electric vehicles will not. But even with electric vehicles, we will take away parking uh, we will create, uh, you know, no vehicle street. We'll just make it really hard for you. And in the case of internal combustion engine, hard and expensive. And to me, that was so refreshing to hear someone actually say that and take a stand for that. It's one of the things I've always found so odd about this whole agenda because I live in London and London was a global leader on this 20 years ago. And Ken Livingstone at Transport for London introduced a congestion charge that made it you know, comparatively expensive, certainly compared to most cities to drive into the city centre. Very, very few cities at the time had congestion charges. Very few still do. And um, introduced huge amounts of bus priority and therefore effectively deprioritization of cars. And he was re-elected. The world didn't end. It was fine. And yet, for some reason, it seems very difficult for politicians to do such things at a national level. And I'd love to see not just more political bravery, because I don't think it's actually that brave, because you know, every time you see opinion poll data, it shows that the public are in favour of this stuff. This isn't con actually as controversial as people to seem extent, to think that yes, it is. To some extent, no, it's the same thing with, you know, everyone in every um, questionnaire always says they want organic fruit, right? Everyone wants organic tomatoes, and yet for some reason, uh, non-organic tomatoes sells a lot better. 
because it also is a matter of people's personal wallets. And of course, there's a difference between living in central London and, and being able to access most of what you need without a car and being, you know, a single mother of two living uh, outside of the city, really relying on the car um, to to get to work, to get the kids to school and everything. And for those people, of course, any increase of, of uh, fuel prices or taxes has a major impact. So I think it's also, yes, in theory, of course, everyone wants zero emission vehicles. Of course, nobody wants air pollution, want clean air, safe streets. We all want that. Uh, but when it comes down to what actually works for me in my everyday, um, I might make it, you know, then my priorities uh, become, uh, you know, a bit shaky. And to some extent, that is absolutely understandable. And that's why it's also the role of businesses and government to make the most sustainable option the cheapest one um, and an available one for the many people. So I think we need that type of policy that don't just address the privileged few uh, who don't really need it so much but to, to take a bigger picture and this is why I think it's hard at a national level because you also have to cater to to that single mum of two with a thin wallet li- living outside of the city but that doesn't in any way mean it can't be done it absolutely can be done just because something is hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it it just means we have to work a bit harder and that's what we need to see now we need to see recommitment acceleration and a bit of you know pull up your sleeves and get it done and as you say, you know, your role is to balance. You know, I, it's very easy for me to say, I think we should do this because I have you know, a single agenda here. I, I'm a, a pro-public transport mm. person and always have been. As you say, there's an awful lot of balance to be struck and a lot of compromise to be struck. And it's your and the COP team's role to find those optimal balances that gets the job done. So you know, fi- final question from me, looking forward to Glasgow, what do you think will come out of it? And what will make you think, yeah, we, 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 we got a great result. We got the best we could possibly get. Well, what's your what's your forecast um, and what's your hope? Well, they're one and the same, just because I'm very optimistic, actually, um, or realistic in my expectations. I don't know which one, a bit of both, maybe. Um, I really hope, in general, that this COP brings with it um, really firm commitments uh, reinforcing the net zero agenda and the importance of the net zero agenda and reacting, uh, you know, in just a, a, a proper manner to the ICPP report. We've heard many times that this is happening, but I think even for someone like me who, who's been in this industry and reading these reports for many years, um, I have a new sense of urgency. Say, so, look, the window of opportunity is actually closing. We don't have 30 years. We don't have 20 years. We have, what, eight years maybe to really change the course of this, this boat. And I want to see that, you know, uh, I want that acknowledged by the world leaders and that they will do something about it. That's what I expect from world leaders come COP. For transport specifically, um, yeah, I want to see industry leaders, 
basically get on stage and just set a hard date in the 2030s for when they will stop sell combustion engine vehicles. That's what I want to see. If we want to be net zero 2050, that's when we need to stop selling the vehicles. And I want the leaders to stand on stage, enough leaders to represent the inevitability of the industry going in that direction to say this, no further, this is a hard stop. Um, and I also want to, I have a long wish list, as you can tell, uh, but I also want to see some very tangible uh, solutions regarding transitioning in the global south, something that is not only uh, around the importance of, or oh, we should all do this, but some hand-on tangible, practical ways to decarbonize transport also in the global south. Well, we'll see what comes out of COP26. And maybe we should also put a, a date in the diary for 2039. And let's see if by the end of the 2030s, we have indeed managed to stop selling any internal combustion engine vehicles on a global basis. So, you know, in 18 years time, let's come back I mean, and, let's and see if we've done it. let's reconvene 35 and see, you know, if this went quicker than we thought. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. A four-year stretch target. Superb. Angela Heldberg, thank you so much for joining me on the Free Reading Podcast. That was thank really, you for really having interesting me. and really enjoyable. Thank, so you, thank you very much. Me. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, thank you very much indeed to my guest, Andrea Holtberg, the climate champion for road transportation for the COP26 summit. And thank you to you for listening. I'll be back next week with the next edition of the Free Reading Podcast. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.